thanks for viewing this program. I'm gonna talk about the effect of improving basic preventive measures in the perioperative arena. And the goal is to reduce Staphylococcus aureus transmission and surgical site infections. So I'm Frank Dexter uh, from the University of Iowa. And after I've gone through the different slides, I'm gonna run through sort of frequent questions that people routinely um, ask me. So sort of background, I've been working for several years with a colleague, um, Dr. Randy Loftus, who came from the University of Iowa. He ran the randomized clinical trial that I'll be discussing. My background is I'm an anesthesiologist by training. Uh, my PhD is uh, formally in, um, it says biomedical engineering, but basically it's industrial engineering. It's my PhD. And um, my work has been in operating room management. So what I'm going to be doing during this talk is describing how you can combine infection control data with operating room management type data. And a lot of the information that I'm going to go through is going to be quite different than normal infection control topics, because it is a unique combination of infection control data about surgical site infections with operating information system data that's relevant. So um, it is going to sound very mathematical because that is my background and that's kind of why I've been asked uh, to give the talk. So in terms of experience, I have uh, published more than um, 400 papers in operating room and anesthesia group management over the years, more than 500, including sort of like invited papers and review articles and, and so forth. And uh, the work at the University of Iowa is that we're basically paid to do analysis for other types of hospitals. So when we're doing this analysis of operating room data, um, including infection control data, this is what the University of Iowa is involved in doing. I don't have any financial relationships with any companies other than my employer, the University of Iowa. And this program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, it's an HMP global company, and it was supported by an educational grant from 3M Healthcare Medical Solutions Division. So I'm gonna tell you about the frequency and costs of surgical site infections. And my colleague, uh, Dr. Randy Loftus, performed this study with my assistant, and we reducing the surgical site infections by mitigating perioperative transmission of Staph aureus. And I'm gonna to explain to you what that all means. And I'll explain how you can measure the transmission of Staphylococcus aureus in your operating rooms. And I'll explain to you why there is a benefit in doing so. Start, what percentage of surgical cases result in a surgical site infection? Depends. And it depends if you use diagnosis codes from your billing data in order to count the number of infections, or if you've people electronically review the charts. And it depends if you assess all surgical cases or only a selection of cases. And it depends if you follow up for a month after surgery, two months, three months, or longer. The U.S. Center for Disease Control's National Healthcare Safety Network assesses each case for 30 days. The U.S. CMS pays surgeons based on 90 days. They're different. But for orthopedics, at least half the surgical site infections are diagnosed more than 30 days postoperatively, and around a third are diagnosed after 90 days. 
So the consequence is how long you follow up will affect your incidence of surgical site infections. So if you get infection data from a hospital and you want to compare it to other hospitals, you need to have the same period of follow-up. You've also got to consider the surgical specialty. California has its hospitals report their surgical site infections. These are the odds ratios for comparing among categories of procedures. The odds ratios are like relative risks. The abbreviations are those used by the Center of Disease Control in their monitoring of hospital infections. Colorectal surgery and liver transplant, they have a high incidence of surgical site infection, and it's a lot more than thoracic surgery or cesarean sections. Okay. These are the data from California. The clinical trial at the University of Iowa compared a usual care group to a treatment group. The usual care patients had a seven to 8% rate of surgical site infection. And that was with a two month follow-up call to the patients. The National Surgical Quality Improvement Program also uses patient contacting up to 30 days. Surgical site infections, five and a half percent, somewhat less. Large teaching hospital in Iowa. All surgical cases, not just those in the study with the highest risk of infection. 90-day follow-up, but no calling of the patients. The patients had to get re-hospitalized, have a clinic visit, laboratory study, radiology, and then the bill diagnosis codes for each encounter use the International Classifications of Diseases 10th revision. And the incidence of surgical site infection was even less, a bit under 4%. So each of those incidences are different, and that's the point. And you should plan on that when you are making your decisions about what operating rooms what operating specialties to monitor. And I'll explain how to do that later. The cost of surgical site infections, we know mostly from Canadian studies. Each province is single payer and several of the Canadian provinces make their data available to investigators. After knee replacement, the incidence was 1%. Again, it's different. The patients who got surgical site infection averaged 22 more hospital and doctor visits over the next two years. 22 is a lot of visits. The province spent in US dollar equivalents $26,000 extra per patient. The Ottawa hospital's patients with surgical site infection. So I converted the province's extra costs into US dollars was around 24,000 more. So it makes sense. That's less than the 26,000 because many cases don't involve an implanted device. The follow-up for the costs also worked for one year rather than two years. That again makes sense why the costs were less. How can you measure perioperative staphylococcus RES transmission? At Georgetown, research assistants opened a box with swabs, tubes and bags, and they recorded how much time it took to collect each sample. Regardless of who collects the samples, the instructions are simple. Suppose you're gonna swab the patient's axilla after they're asleep. You open the package with the swab, you pull out the swab, 
you swab the site, you put the swab into a tube, and then you break off the plastic end and you recap the tube. That's the process. Culturing six sites before surgery and seven sites after surgery. The extra after the surgery is lumen of the intravenous catheter's stopcock. That's going to be sterile when you take it out of the package. The patient sampling is done when the patient is asleep if they have a general anesthetic. So later I'll explain why you're culturing the agent dial and the anesthesia machine pressure valve and the hands of the anesthesiologist and of the anesthesia provider. That would be the anesthesiology resident, the nurse anesthetist, or the anesthesiologist assistant. You sample pairs of successive cases, same operating room on the same day. So there can be transmission within the case, staff areas from one, one location to another. There also can be transmission between cases from one patient to the next patient. So here's an example. Patient's nasopharynx at the start of the case, then the anesthesiologist had the staph aureus on their hands. That's an example of within a case transmission. Then the nurse anesthetist had the same genotype at the start of the second case. That's between case transmission. From their hands, to the patient after anesthesia induction. So directly or indirectly is also contaminated the anesthesia equipment. So we have here transmission that's within case during the first case, within case during the second case and between case. For now, focus on the times. We're collecting all the samples, took around three and a half minutes before surgery and about four and a half minutes after surgery. So the total time that it takes to collect the staph aurea samples is less than 10 minutes, significantly less than 10 minutes. Now I'll explain later that generally you're gonna be collecting samples from cases that are lasting three to four hours. So generally that's gonna be two successive cases in the operating room for the day for culturing so an operating room nurse can collect the samples or an anesthesia assistant can collect the samples, but it'll take some extra time, less than 10 minutes, but it will take some extra operating room time. You might instead choose to have a research technician collect the samples. If so, you need to plan more of their time. It won't take more operating room time, but they've got to walk to the operating room wait for the patient to be asleep, then collect the samples. And then later towards the end of the case, they've got to return and they generally have to wait until the uh, surgical procedure has ended. So there's waiting time that you need to add to their time for sampling, but not if it's done by a circulating nurse and anesthesia technician who's dedicated to that room or that room in adjacent rooms and so forth. The randomized trial's clinical primary endpoint was reduced staph aureus transmission. Some surgeons were randomized to their usual care. Other surgeons were assigned infection control bundle. Plus, after several months, they got feedback from the staphylococcus aureus transmission. All the patients of each surgeon, they're assigned to the surgeon's group 
if the patient chose to participate. So it was the surgeon's group. Staph aureus is transmitted when it moves from one reservoir to another, either within the case or between cases or both. So it's detected in the patient's nares, then on the anesthesiologist's hands, on the volatile agent dial, and then at the intravenous stopcock. The infection control bundle with feedback significantly reduced transmission. That means again, within case or between successive cases, same room, same day. The feedback was the presence of transmission and the bundle and the feedback together reduced surgical site infections. I'm gonna use the hazard ratio later when we get to the economics. So let me just kind of run through the numbers that contribute to the hazard ratio. So the patients whose surgeons followed the infection control bundle and benefited from feedback about the staph aureus transmission. One of those patients out of 106 had surgical site infection at the two month mark. So one out of 106. Among the usual care patients, 10 of 130, okay, develop surgical site infection. So that's why you have in the numerator one divided by 106 and the denominator you have 10 divided by 130. And when you do that arithmetic, you get 0.12. That's the estimate of the hazard ratio. I'll use that later on. So some patients in both groups, mostly the ones who got usual care, they had Staphylococcus aureus transmission during the case or between cases. There were 11% of the patients with transmission who developed surgical site infection. And among the patients without transmission, 1.8% had infection postoperatively. So if we take the ratio of 11% to the 1.8%, that's 5.95. It's the relative risk of a surgical site infection if you have staph aureus transmission. So the broad point here is that transmission is strongly associated with infection. Staphylococcus aureus transmission measured in the operating room is a marker for the risk of infection. Why use staph aureus transmission as an endpoint, not only for clinical trials, but for purposes of assessment within your hospital? A patient's risk for developing surgical site infection depends on many covariates. Many of these covariates are not related to the risk of transmission of the pathogen, what you can control, but related to the individual patient. So I showed you earlier the large impact of surgical specialty on the risk of perioperative infection. You can't change the surgical specialty of the patient. The presence of systematic disease differs among patients. And even if you make efforts at trying to control a patient's diabetes, they still have diabetes. You can't change the fact that they have diabetes. Whether the surgery took considerable time differs among patients. These are not small differences. These are differences of a case taking two hours versus six hours. That again is related to the underlying procedure. It's not something that you can control for the hospital. And so the problem is that evaluating surgical site infection 
depends on rigorous control of these and other covariates. And yet you look, none of these matter for staph aureus transmission. These are not covariates for staph aureus transmission. That's why staphylococcus aureus transmission is such a good measure to assess the risk of surgical site infection. It's because it doesn't depend on these covariates. And so the sample sizes are much less. That's the advantage. So I'm gonna describe now each component of the clinical trial that Dr. Loftus led. Hand hygiene. So there were the pumps dispensing 70% isopropyl alcohol. The pumps were right next to the patient. They were pumps dispensing 70% isopropyl alcohol, okay? And we know from the studies of Rowan's that the positioning is important. Rowan's used video observation to map anesthesia providers' hand contact. So for example, the patient bed was touched a lot. The anesthesia cart was touched a lot. The anesthesia chair was touched a lot. And what they did was they cultured those frequently touched sites. A compliance in their graph means World Health Organization moments for hand hygiene. After touching a site in the anesthesia work environment, before touching the patient, okay, hand hygiene should be done. After touching the patient, before touching any sites in the environment, hand hygiene would be done. And there's less compliance during induction and emergence. That makes sense. Does it matter? Yes because the environment becomes contaminated. The dispensers that we used in the randomized trial were mounted on poles, not personally worn. Okay? But we know from the study of that pump that anesthesia practitioners were more often used to hand hygiene when the pump was, had immediate proximity right next to them. So there was no need to turn away from the patient in order to do hand hygiene. The anesthesia workspace was organized deliberately, evidence-based. So there was a wire basket on the IV pole and was used for the contaminated anesthesia equipment. And I'll explain that in the next section. Environmental cleaning. So the anesthesia machine and the monitors were disinfected at the start and end of the case. It was also wiped down during the case after induction when the anesthesia provider had time. So for measuring staph aureus transmission, the site sampled, okay, it includes the adjustable pressure limiting valve and the agent dial. This is an old anesthesia machine, very old, uh, but this is what was used in the earlier study. So you can see the, the results. There was absence of Rhaegor hand hygiene. There was no designated dirty area. There was not wiping down the anesthesia machine during the case. And the result was that the anesthesia workspace became contaminated by the end of the case. So pathogenic bacteria can get transmitted from these reservoirs to the patient, like through the contaminated intravenous catheter. Between the start and end of the case, around 15% of sites had new contamination, more than 100 colony forming units. So we have a designated location for the contaminated anesthesia equipment, right? 
they wiped the anesthesia machine with quaternary ammonium compound after induction of the anesthesia, and that significantly reduced contamination. That's why that was used as part of the randomized clinical trial. Disinfecting caps were used for the intravenous catheter lumens and syringes. The caps contain isopropyl alcohol for disinfection. Caps can have an internal brushing mechanism that scrub. The green connectors clean female connectors. So you have a, like an open lumen stopcock. The blue is for a male lore connector for like the syringe tip. And then the caps were connected to the IV pole so that they're available. Patients were decontaminated. One earlier study compared Upiracin ointment, okay? It's an antibiotic used twice a day for five days. And the alternative was 3M's nasal povidone iodine product. That's used one time before the patient enters the operating room. So the 3M product was at least as good as mupiracin. So the 3M is at least as good as mupiracin. All the patients used had chlorodexine wipes preoperatively same for the randomized control trial that we did. The randomized trial also used 3M's nasal povidone iodine. So why any decolonization? The earlier placebo-controlled trial evaluated mupiracin, and there was substantial reduction in the risk of surgical site infection. So if the 3M povidone iodine seems equivalent to mupiracine, why not use the mupiracine? Because we don't want to rely on the patients following instructions for five days preoperatively. The other reason is to have good antibiotic stewardship by not using an antibiotic. Why the 3M product? So prior studies investigated patients with positive nasal Staphylococcus aureus. The 3M product significantly disinfected through four hours compared to the 10% solution. I'm going to go into later why four hours of duration matters, but it does. That is the duration that is our target. It is a four hour period. So I'll address later that that's a substantive issue. Ultraviolet disinfection of the room that was used at the end of the workday. It was done selectively, not every case, not every room. It was done selectively when there was staph aureus evidence of environmental transmission. And what I'll get into next is the idea of targeting specific rooms. So you've learned about the randomized clinical trial. We had a bundle of basic measures and it was used to prevent surgical site infection. There's feedback with assessing Staphylococcus aureus transmission. Suppose you wanna do this at your hospital, then what's the first step? The first step is you need to choose the few operating rooms to target or the few specialty and operating room combinations to target. Some operating rooms are used nearly always for one specialty. And then for those operating rooms, okay, the combination of room and specialty would be the same. There are other operating rooms that are used for two different specialties. Then you may target the room just for one specialty, 
or for both specialties, which means targeting the room. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start, first of all, by kind of quantifying what is going to be obvious to people who work in surgical suites, but it may not be obvious for people who are not typically working in operating rooms. Okay. And these basic characteristics are going to matter. Suppose two operating rooms have a similar incidence of surgical site infection. So the two operating rooms, infection risk per case is the same, but the operating rooms have very different numbers of cases per week. If the operating rooms have very different numbers of cases per week and the incidence is the same, if you wanna have the largest impact on reducing infections, you need to target the room that has the largest number of cases. Why do cases per week differ among operating rooms? Because some rooms are used principally by surgeons who very long duration cases, and some operating rooms are gonna be used by surgeons who do principally procedures with short duration cases. If the rooms are generally scheduled for eight hours or generally scheduled for 10 hours, Longer times per case means fewer cases per day. So again, if you have long duration cases, you're gonna be scheduling fewer cases per day in the room. And all of these different factors combine. And the reason they combine is because longer duration cases are associated with more infections. So we need to combine the incidence of infection the duration of the surgery and the cases per day in the room because operating rooms do not have equal risks of surgical site infections. So at the start of the lecture, the first data I showed you was from the state of California that different specialties categories of procedures, they have different incidences of infection. The specialties are not distributed randomly among the operating rooms patient risk factors for surgical site infection. That also differs among operating rooms. So different operating rooms have very large differences in the incidence of infection, but they also have large differences in the numbers of cases per room per day. And we need to combine all of this together. And it is not obvious until you do the analysis which rooms to target which combinations of room and specialty to target. You'd use about three years worth of data. And fundamentally the data is the room, it's the date, how long the case took, and some version of specialty. You can get that data from your anesthesia billing data, not the bills, just the raw data that's submitted. You can get that data from your operating room information system, you can get it from a combination. There are multiple ways also to figure out the specialty from the surgical procedure code if you don't record the specialty itself. Because you want every patient, not a sample, you'll likely infer surgical site infections from diagnosis codes. You're unlikely to be using this data from infection control specialists who've been contacting every patient. Rather, you're likely to use diagnosis codes. Many hospitals use the International Classifications of Diseases 10th revision. 
And they're electronic tables. Usually they're joined. That would be the terminology. So that you can figure out which patients had a surgical site infection postoperatively. So for every encounter, you look at the diagnosis code and ask, is that diagnosis code one that's related to surgical site infection? So this is from a large hospital in Iowa. 20% of the operating rooms accounted for the most surgical site infections. The 20% of the operating rooms with the most surgical site infections had 40% of the infections. You wouldn't value in applying the randomized clinical trial result. So what you wanna do especially here is do not include the 47% of operating room and specialty combinations that didn't have a single observed surgical site infection in three years. Around three quarters of all infections were from 10% of the specialty room combinations. So again, three quarters of the infections by 10% of the specialty room combinations. You wanna target that 10%. So why are there so many more surgical site infections obtained from some operating rooms than others? If every room had the same incidence, by definition, the correlation would be the maximum of one okay, between cases and infections. But there's overall no apparent correlation between more cases in an operating room and more surgical site infections. Operating rooms with longer average case durations have a greater incidence of infection. So that's why the CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network adjusts the odds of a surgical site infection for surgical time. The relevant operating room management aspect is that longer cases mean fewer cases per day scheduled into the room. Divide all the surgical cases into quartiles. There's a strong association between the number of cases and the number of surgical site infections when you limit to cases in the third quartile of duration. And at this hospital, those were cases that lasted from 3.3 hours to 4.8 hours. So why? First, in the range of 3.3 to 4.8 hours, those cases have surgical times longer than two hours. As the surgical times are longer than two hours, they're more surgical site infections. The incidence is greater. But if your cases are lasting 3.3 to 4.8 hours, the duration is sufficiently brief to have two or three of those cases per day in each operating room. So it's not that the case is sufficiently long that you only have one case per day in the operating room. So you figured out the specialty and operating room combinations to target. The next step is to assess the Staphylococcus aureus transmission for the combinations. This is a baseline process. So what sample size do you use to assess if transmission is large? What is a large staph aureus transmission rate? What is a small? The way to be able to judge that is to use the results of the randomized clinical trial. The usual care group 
had 38% incidence of transmission. The treatment group had samples before and after feedback. I'm only going to consider those after feedback, 16%. So we go from 38% transmission within case or between case to 16%. We use that in a statistical power analysis for comparison of 38% and 16%. The sample size is 25. 25 case pairs. A pair of successive cases in the same room on the same day. So that way you're measuring staph aureus transmission not only within case, but also from one case to the next. So suppose the population's three rooms, all of the same specialty. So for example, it's three rooms of orthopedics. You'd use the first and the second cases of the day in each room you'd get 25 case pairs probably collected in about two weeks, two weeks of sampling. From the results of the first 25 case pairs, you have substantial staph aureus transmission. Then you apply the basic preventive measures from the randomized clinical trial that you're not doing now because that's why you have substantial transmission. How many case pairs do you use to know if you've made improvement? That's going to be 50 before and 50 after. You keep on collecting samples while you're implementing the bundle. You can use these samples to provide feedback and identify the specific transmission pathways that you try to block. Then once you're implemented, while you're receiving the feedback, you'd be collecting another 50 case pairs of data in order to be able to confirm that you've reduced your transmission of staph aureus. Once staph aureus transmission is reduced, like in the clinical trial, you're now in a maintenance period. Over many months, you'd collect another 25 case pairs. The last topic I'm gonna to cover is economics. Think about cancer drugs. When you have cancer drugs, their value is assessed using the cost per year of life saved or the cost per quality adjusted year of life. The prevention of surgical site infections is different. A bundle of preventive measures and the assessment of staph aureus transmission, it can be net cost saving. So we are not going to be doing is measuring quality adjusted life years. We are simply determining whether the net effect from a societal point of view is a reduction in cost. Suppose we're gonna target a population of three operating rooms used for orthopedic cases. Supplies per case were used in the randomized trial and it's around $24 per case. For the culturing and microbiology of 125 case pairs, that costs about 60,000. So the total program cost is around $180,000 over a three-year period. Now, at the start of the lecture, there were two different costs of infection. I want to do is deliberately bias the results to be not cost-saving. We're going to use the smaller of the estimate of the savings deliberately to be conservative. We're reducing surgical site infections, right? So we use a reduction of infections 
to 12% of baseline. Remember I showed you that the hazard ratio for the reduction of surgical site infections was 12%. But we wanna be conservative here. We wanna underestimate the benefit. So instead, we're gonna use the lesser reduction to 56% of baseline of transmission. So doing the arithmetic, we have 5.4 million savings. So even though we are underestimating the savings and the cost per infection, and we're underestimating the expected reduction in infections, right? We have 5.4 million savings, which is an estimated savings close to 30 times greater than the estimated program cost. So is there a trick here? Yes. The important thing is that we are targeting the operating room and specialty combinations that have the largest number of surgical site infections. If you don't target the operating room and specialty combinations that have the most infections, the hospital can't regroup the cost. The important step is not only to have staff areas transmission monitoring for feedback and to apply a bundle of techniques to reduce infection. It is to use your operating room data and your infection diagnosis data to know the rooms and the specialties to target. So here's the arithmetic using the large Iowa hospitals, average cases per operating room and average infections per room. Still, there's reliably net cost savings, okay? So targeting not principally the three operating rooms, okay, that had the most surgical site infections, you can still have savings. What targeting essentially means is not including the patients and the operating rooms and the specialties that have hardly any infections at all. So we are excluding the half of rooms and specialties without infection. That is what targeting means. And it depends on relying on your data. So summarizing, surgical site infection incidences differ among specialties. I went through the data from the state of California showing that. Okay. Do not try an approach of saying you want to reduce all surgical site infections. Target the specialties that have the highest incidence, but many cases as well. You can use staff ARIAS transmission monitoring, which means basically swabbing particular sites, specific sites in your operating room and the anesthesia practitioner's hands for staph aureus. And then you use those results to assess transmission within case and between cases. The people who can collect those data are the circulating nurses, the anesthesia technicians, different individuals who are already in the operating rooms. The cases you're generally gonna be targeting are gonna be lasting three to four hours. They can spend the extra three minutes to do the swabbing and to get the hands checked. You use that information to provide feedback to your hospital infection prevention specialists 
to the surgeons, to the anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists and nurses to adjust how you apply a bundle of preventive measures. That also includes ultraviolet disinfection of specific rooms at the end of the day. You need to plan a dirty location, especially in the anesthesia workspace. After induction of anesthesia and the patient has been stabilized, wipe down the anesthesia machine, wipe down the anesthesia areas that likely have become contaminated. Good vascular care includes disinfection of the male and female ports. Decolonize the patient using chlorhexidine wipes, okay? And using a 5%, or could be 10% of povidone iodine. Studies have shown that the 3M 5% nasal povidone iodine lasts four hours, the target duration of cases where we have a high incidence of surgical site infection, but we also have many cases per operating room. Use your operating room data, your operating room information system data, or your anesthesia information system data in order to identify the rooms to target. Your anesthesia information system data, your operating room information system data, what they will provide is the specialty, the room, and the cases per room per day. And then you combine that with information on the diagnosis codes for all your encounters. Encounters are radiology visits, surgical clinic visits, hospitalizations, all encounters of the patients for a 90-day period after surgery. Then once you've identified the specific operating room specialties to target, you measure the staph aureus transmission to decide if a prevention program is warranted. You would collect 25 samples initially for each operating room specialty combination. You choose the ones that you are going to target. While you're beginning the process of feedback, collect an additional 50 samples. That means case combinations, pairs, first case to second case, you measure the transmission. Then after your intervention has been applied to see if you have significant reduction and additional 50 case pairs, okay? And then finally, over many, many months, maintenance is 25 case pairs. When you put this together, because the cost of the infection prevention program is so much less than the number of surgical site infections that are reduced, the aim here is net cost savings, aim net cost savings many fold over. And that it's possible not only because this bundle of interventions and feedback reduces your incidence of surgical site infection so much, but it is, it is a targeted intervention. So before we conclude, I'm gonna kind of run through what are common questions so if I were giving the talk, people would put in the chat. What is the hand sampling solution? Because this is gonna be the anesthesiologist's hands, the nurse anesthetist's hands, anesthesiology resident. So it's a balanced electrolytes, uh, sodium, magnesium, stuff like that. The trick here is uh, paper towels because people need to dry off their hands uh, afterwards. And so if you don't have paper towels in the operating room, bring in a paper towel or something like that. Okay. What are some other questions? 
the data. So the data, which you want to do in terms of the specifics of the operating room data are the anesthesia group data, and then the infection codes. So I like to do it where there are two worksheets. Worksheets can be Excel, or you can use uh, Google Sheets. So in one of the worksheets, the one with the operating room or the anesthesia data, you need, want to know for one field, it's going to be the operating room, and that includes the suite. So it might be like main operating room 32 or neurology room A, something like that. So that's one column. Then another column you want to have is the date and the time that the patient entered the room. Another column be the date and time that they left the room. And you probably want to keep track of the procedure. And there are many different ways of tracking procedure. So in the United States, for example, there's the current procedural terminology code. And you can get that from the anesthesia uh, billing data. That works very well. It's not the anesthesia code. It's the primary surgical CPT code, current procedural terminology that the anesthesia group used for the build. You might use international classifications of disease, version 10, the procedure coding system. And either way, um, let's suppose you want to develop uh, categories equivalent to specialty. So the Agency for Healthcare and Research and Quality, they have a thing called HCUP and an HCUP net, uh, an HCUP, H-C-U-P, you can download something called clinical classification software. And it's right online, clinical classification software from AHRQ. And what that does is it takes all the different combinations of the procedure codes and it puts them into broad categories. And that's practically the same as specialty for this purpose. So when we talk about operating room specialty combinations, you might want to make it, quote, orthopedics, but you might want to do it sort of like joint arthroplasty, separate from spine, and, and that can be using the clinical classification software. Most hospitals we want to do probably exclude the urgent cases, and there's a couple things you can do. First of all, if the patient is inpatient preoperatively, exclude them. So what you do is use the date at which the patient was admitted and compared it to the date of surgery. And if it's before the patient was admitted before the surgery, exclude them. Urgent cases, you would exclude the add-on cases. And one of the ways to do that is if you don't have a field which says that, you can use the anesthesia e-code uh, for billing. Like for example, the American Society of Anesthesiologists Physical Status, it could be two E, E stands for basically emergency or add-on. Another way that you can do it is if the patient has an emergency room charge on the day of surgery. Okay, so that's another way to know about urgent or not. And if you have questions after this talk, for example, that one of the things that you can do is my website is uh, franklindexter.net, just franklindexter combined or franklindexter.com, it doesn't matter. And at the education page, there's sample reports for these surgical, basically infection control type things at the end of the operating room management sample report, it has more details. Now, how do you combine those operating room or anesthesia data along with the infection control data? So you wanna have a separate um, Excel sheet or Google sheet, 
And uh, essentially what you're doing from your hospital is that they'll have a massive table that has fields like encounter uh, and then the diagnosis code and then the date and whether it's present when a mission. So in that massive table, when they talk about encounter, that includes things like all the pathology tests as an encounter, radiology tests as an encounter, hospitalization as an encounter. And so what you do is you're going to limit it to those records, okay, in which you have one of the uh, surgical infections. These are things like T81.4 is the ICD-10 diagnosis code. And then what you do is you join that table with the operating or anesthesia data. That's the way to do it. Um, and you basically combine the data and then that's the way you kind of target those operating room specialties that have most infections. That's the way to do it. Um, why limit it to present one emission? The reason to limit to present one emission is because if the same patient has multiple surgeries, you only want to count them the first time. You're interested in patients who have infection, not patients developed infection from their procedure, not patients who are having surgery because they have a surgical site. What else is a typical uh, thing? Suppose you're going to monitor staph aureus transmission. Um, where do these swabs come from? You know, these are special types of swabs for sampling. So the randomized clinical trial used PathTrack and the company sends everything. So there's a box and the box, it contains uh, supplies. Basically it's a series of plastic bags and it has the tubes um, and the swabs and so forth. And then they all have these things have barcodes on them. When you're done, you put the samples uh, back into the box and then you ship box uh, to the company. And the product comes uh, with the shipping labels. So that's how it was done during the randomized trial. Other question, what is sort of an example of the sampling to be kind of more specific about it? So I showed during the, in the slides, an example from the old anesthesia machine of adjustable pressure limiting valve and the agent dial. So at the case start, you basically open up one of the swabs and you go to the adjustable pressure limiting valve and you just swab the entire surface of it. And the same thing for the agent dial. And then you put the sample into the tube and click off the end of the plastic and screw on the cap and not too tight, put it in the little plastic bag and it goes in the box and that's the process. Okay. And then you would use a separate sample at the end of the case. So the reason that this can be done in three minutes for each of the sites ahead is because it is pretty much that simple. In terms of uh, when I went through each of the different sites, are there any ones that are particular uh, challenges in some way? Not really. So to kind of go through again, what were the sites? So there's the agent dial and the adjustable pressure limiting valve. Okay. Um, there's the hands of the anesthesia provider. That would be the nurse anesthetist or the um, anesthesia resident, if you have one. And if you have a case where the anesthesiologist is personally administering the anesthesia or the nurse anesthetist is, and there isn't anybody else, then you would just sample uh, the one person. You do have the patient. So there's the nose of the patient, there's the axilla of the patient, 
and there's the groin of the patient. Okay, so you have the patient samples, and then there's the lumen of the stopcock, but that's at the end of the case. So in terms of the, what are the problems that can occur with these samples? Our experience is that they're not sent back promptly or they don't get to the hospital laboratory promptly. So these are bacterial samples. And so if you wanna be able to measure uh, Staph aureus transmission at a high level, they need to be uh, processed quickly. Another reason that's important to process these samples uh, quickly is so that you get feedback because feedback, which occurs weeks later, is not effective feedback. Feedback, the whole point of it is that it's prompt. Another problem is mixing the specimens between kits. So you want to do is measure your transmission within case and between cases. So the thing would be is if you're measuring transmission within case and between cases in each box, for example, if you use path tracks, approach to this is separate for basically the boxes for two paired cases. You can't mix your specimens between the boxes, right? And in the same way you wanna know if you wanna do between case transmission, you have to know which are the specimens from the first patient and which are the specimens from the second patient. So the whole barcoding system is important and trying to mix this up can be very misleading in terms of measuring transmission. So that's something to consider. What about the patient samples? The patients do not need uh, to be asleep. It's not limited uh, to general anesthesia, but these cases are ones that are long durations, typically three to four hours. So patients routinely will have a general anesthetic or it could be a spinal anesthetic or an epidural anesthetic. Okay. So the patient's nose you're gonna use one swab to measure the sample from the patient's nares. So that's one swab before the case and one swab at the end, okay? Um, it can be before the patient has uh, woken up, but it's one swab for both nares. Then the axilla, it's gonna be one swab for both axilla, one swab during the beginning of the case, one swab at the end of the case. And then for the groin, okay, again, the same thing is going to be, it's going to be one swab, which is going to be in terms of both sides, in terms of the groin and so forth. So that um, in each situation, you're doing one swab at the beginning of the case and one swab at the end of the case. Well, that concludes my talk. So if you have questions, please feel free to email me at franklin-dexter at uiowa.edu. I know sometimes it can be kind of confusing for the email. So you can go to my website. It's uh, franklindexter.net or franklindexter.com. It, do it doesn't matter. And uh, there's a contact information button. You can click the contact information and send email to me if you have questions. If you refer to the specific slide, that'll be great. And I'll answer back promptly. And as I mentioned, if you are not really following all the stuff about the operating room management and just seeing a report would be helpful. There's an education page and you can click in the education page and there's an operating room management sample report and it's the end of the sample report there. And it gives examples of how you target specific operating rooms and specialty combinations. There's one sample report just for operating rooms 
And there's another one for the operating room specialty combinations to target. Okay. Again, thank you very much for your time. Bye-bye.